0: I'm pretty full just uh, studying for Chapter 32. I've uh, been uh, convicted and smacked around enough, so I'm good to just pray and close it. But uh, you guys would be robbed of the smackdown as well. So I'm here to just share uh, share the blessing. We come to Numbers 32 and Israel has been going through their wanderings. We know that that's the original Hebrew name therefore. The book of Numbers is the book of wanderings and we're following Israel through their journey. Rather their wandering in the wilderness because of their disobedience. We've mentioned that each Wednesday night the whole theme of Numbers is obedience versus disobedience, and here we're going to be introduced to a couple tribes that are on the verge of disobedience. Read one scripture, Uh, Romans 15 verse 4 tells us, "...for whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope." So again, Numbers 32, this is for our learning. Not just the historical aspect of it, not just the life of Moses, uh, but Lord, how do I apply this to my own life? So let's read Numbers 32, verse 1 through 5. It says, Now the children of Reuben and the children of Gad had a very great multitude of livestock. And when they saw the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead, that indeed the region was a place for livestock, the children of Gad and the children of Reuben came and spoke to Moses, to Eliezer the priest, and to the leaders of the congregation, saying, Ataroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Heshbon, Eli, Ale, Shebam, Nebo, and Beon. The country which the Lord defeated before the congregation of Israel is a land for livestock, and your servants have livestock. Therefore, they said, if we have found favor in your sight, let this land be given to your servants as a possession. Do not take us over to the Jordan. Again, Israel, this book of wanderings, where are they wandering to? They're wandering to the promised land. They've been in this wandering and the whole journey is to lead up to the promised land. In the last chapter, last two chapters, we saw Israel defeat the Midianites and they were able to pillage and plunder. We saw that strange prophet Balaam get what he deserves, right? And he's put to death. And it seems as if the land of Midian and the land of the Moabites was a great land for livestock. And now the tribe of Reuben And the tribe of Gad say, you know what Moses, let's just stay here. Don't take us over the Jordan into the promised land. Again, God had promised this land to Abraham centuries ago, over 400 years ago. Israel was in slavery for 400 years, dreaming and crying out for this promised land. These same Israelites were in the wilderness traveling 40 years towards this promised land. And yet the Reubenites and the Gadites say, do not take us over the Jordan. Again, it's pretty much insanity if we really think about it. I don't know when was the last time you journeyed and you wandered your way to Disney World, ride, right? And you went through the three hours. If you have little ones, maybe it's longer than three hours, four hours traveling up there. But imagine, I don't know if it exists anymore, right, Yeehaw Junction, or imagine, right, you pull up to the stop on the way there and they see the candy, they see the Mickey Mouse with all the pamphlets, that kids love to grab one of each one, right? They see the little playground, the little dog park, they see the Dunkin' Donuts and the Wendy's right there off the turnpike, and they say, Mom, Dad, let's just stay right here, Right? Mickey Mouse's statue's right in the middle here. There's soda, there's snacks, they got Frosties. Let's just stay right here. We would consider that mad, especially after spending tens of thousands of dollars on the trip, right? But how much more is Moses almost like tweaking a little bit, right? As he's hearing this, as Moses would desire nothing more than to be able to go into the promised land, but he knows because of his sin, he's not able to go in. You see, these men were not looking at life spiritually. And they certainly were not allowing the Word of God to dictate their goals or dictate their path. It's a great question for us practically. What dictates the goals within our lives? Is it God and His Word or is it the American dream? Is it our parents? Is it our in-laws? Who dictates the path that we're going down Is it the word of God or is it someone or something else? God and his own words had specifically promised the land to Reuben and to Gad. And yet they wanted to settle for less than what God had promised them. The problem here is that the focus of these tribes was not on God, was not on his word. It wasn't on God's promises The focus of these tribes was on what the current land could do for their very great multitude of livestock. And their focus on what the land could do for their very great multitude caused them to lose focus on what God's best was for their lives. Or the possibilities of what they could miss out on if they did not follow God's word. When was the last time when we made a decision, we considered, what if I'm not following the Lord here? What if I'm missing out on a promise that God has in store for me here? I would say you're being a wise man or a wise woman, and you are showing that you have the fear of the Lord. And Proverbs tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Oftentimes we don't stop and consider what am I missing out on? What promise am I missing out on from the Lord? We're more concerned with what am I missing out on when it comes to comfort or when it comes to the toys or what this world has to offer. If we're quick, we could turn to Genesis 13 and we see the life of Lot and how these three verses completely change not only the life of Lot, But the life of his future children, right? It affects all of them because of where Lot's focus was at. Genesis chapter 13 verse 10 tells us, And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plains of Jordan, that it was well watered everywhere before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt, as you go towards Zoar. Then Lot chose for himself all the plain of Jordan, and Lot journeyed east, and they separated from each other. However, what does verse 13 tell us about the spiritual aspect of where Lot was looking? That the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. Right? Two focuses there. Lot, he's just focused on what he sees and how it could benefit his pockets or his comfort. Verse 13, it reveals the spiritual lens and the spiritual focus of Sodom and Gomorrah. That the men that lived there were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. How are we making our decisions? Is it simply based on comfort and ease and what's going to benefit our pockets? Or are we taking a step back and saying, how is this going to affect me spiritually? Even for us as parents with our children, their schooling, their group of friends, their hobbies, the sports, the ballet, the dancing, are we considering the spiritual estate of our children? Now again, I'm not saying that we all need to just live on the church and have only a commune here. We only live here and act here. But are we considering, how is this going to affect my son or daughter spiritually? The way they're built, the way they're made up. Does this sport lend to them growing spiritually? Or am I going to have to do even more work here as a parent to enforce the truth of God's Word? Biblically, we see that focusing not only on comfort, but focusing on what we may miss out on in this world is not the right way to make a decision either. Sometimes we see an option. We say, man, I don't want to miss out on X, Y, or Z. You see, in Matthew 19, verse 21 and 22, Jesus tells the rich young ruler... If you want to be perfect, go and sell what you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowfully, for he had great possessions. He was more concerned with losing what he had. He was more concerned with, what am I going to miss out on what this world has to offer what am I going to miss out on? Instead of being focused spiritually and saying, man, what am I going to miss out on following Jesus Christ and the treasures that I'm going to have in heaven? You see, in John, that's a decision that the disciples make. They're focused on what am I going to miss out on spiritually. And this is the right way to make a decision. In our own personal lives, as the father in the home, as the single mom in the home, the way to make decisions is, Lord, what will we miss out on spiritually if I make this decision? In John chapter 6, verse 66, it tells us that from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Then Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away also? But Simon Peter answered him saying, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter didn't want to miss out on anything spiritually. He didn't want to miss out on being near to Jesus Christ. He didn't want to miss out on being near the man who had the words of eternal life. And is that what our day-to-day looks like? Again, getting convicted left and right, preparing for this, right? When the Spirit knocks on our hearts, saying, hey, let's go spend some extra time in devotional, and I'd like to spend extra time in my blankets, right? That's a decision I make. There, I'm not saying, what am I going to miss out on spiritually? There, I'm saying, what am I going to miss out on? My comfort, the sheets, the blankets, right? The comforter, that's what I'm focused on. And the warning here is having a desire For being mediocre. That's the warning here. Mediocrity. It's the state of being of medium or low quality. Mediocrity. It's such a warning and it's such an easy way to go, especially in our spiritual life. More often than not, we are more than content to settle into a state of being mediocre in our spiritual life. God had promised the tribe of Gad and the tribe of Reuben so much spiritual blessing, but they just wanted to settle and be mediocre. Hey, we're closer to the promised land, but we'll just wait right on the other side of the river. We'll just think about our past battles and our past victories over the Midianites and over the Moabites. And if we're honest, something being mediocre doesn't really bother us if it doesn't cost us that much. If the cost is low, it doesn't really bother us that much, right? You buy something from the dollar store and it breaks. Are you really that bummed out? No, because it costs you $1.25, right? The dollar store, now everything's dollar $1.25. Growing up, McDonald's had 29-cent hamburgers and 39-cent cheeseburgers, depending if it was Sunday or Wednesday, right? And were we bothered about them? Were we angry? No way. We were excited about them, right? Why? Because for 29 cents, 39 cents, you know how many cheeseburgers I could eat at one sitting, right? However, when you spend $20 on a cheeseburger or $30 on a cheeseburger and it's not great or you ordered it medium and it comes out well done or you ordered it well done and you see the red juice coming out and you're freaking out, right? Does it not bother you more and more and more? Right? I love my wife, but whenever we go to a fancy restaurant, if the food is not like perfect, it hurts her soul all the more. right? Because of the price attached to it. Because of the price. Whenever we deal with death, what's the thing that we want most? When we deal with death, either when someone is dying, what are their words saying they wish they had more of? Or when someone that we love and care about is dying, what do we desire more of? More money in their bank account so we could get it when they die? Hopefully not. We'll pray for you, right? What is it that we desire? Time. We desire time. We wish we had more time. Or we wish we had more time with them. Just one more moment. One more song. One more dance. One more meal. One more conversation. And in our lives, is there anything that comes at a greater price than our spiritual state and our time? Is there anything more costly in our lives than our spiritual state and our time? Our time, it affects everything, and we always want more of it. We always wish we could have it back. You talk to parents of teenagers, they wish they could go back to that time. You talk to parents of young adults, they wish they could go back in time. And our spiritual state, does that not affect more in our lives? Does anything affect more in our lives than our spiritual state? It affects our eternity. It affects our home life. It affects our personal life. It affects our thoughts, our dreams, our joy, our happiness, our love, our own self-worth, our fear, our peace. Is there anything in life that comes at a greater price than our spiritual life? And yet more often than not, we are okay with it being mediocre, even though it's the most costly thing that we have. We're okay with settling and just being okay when it comes to spiritual things. We don't want to strive and push the limits of what God has for us. We just want to settle into a state that we're at least saved. Do I at least have fire insurance, right? My kids are good kids. Do they at least have fire insurance? And there's always a price to be paid when we settle for spiritual mediocrity. There's always a price to be paid when we settle for being mediocre in our spiritual life. And the sad part is that price not only affects our lives, but it affects the lives of our children. It affects their lives. We'll see that shortly, but in verse 6 and 7... Moses says to the children of Gad and to the children of Reuben, Shall your brethren go to war while you sit here? Now, why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given you? Moses, he's having some flashbacks here. But he, he makes two great points here. He says, hey... Just because you want to sit here and settle and be mediocre does not negate the responsibility you have as a child of God to be in the spiritual war that's going on. Just because they wanted to settle, just because they wanted to just focus on their livestock did not change the fact that they were responsible for the wars and the battle going on affecting their own lives and the lives of their brothers and sisters. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 this is a father in the faith speaking to a son in the faith. And he's encouraging him in the ministry. He's encouraging him in being a pastor and in being in ministry. And notice the language that Paul uses here speaking to his son in the faith, Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. Paul tells Timothy, This charge I commit to you, son Timothy according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some having rejected concerning the faith, have suffered shipwreck, of whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Again, this charge I commit to you, he's speaking of being enlisted in the military. He's speaking of the words and the language that a commanding officer gives to the people underneath them. I charge you to do X, Y, or Z. And he tells them that he charges him that he would be able to wage the good warfare. Again, we're in a spiritual battle. And just because we go through seasons where we want to settle, it does not mean that the warfare stops or that the battle stops. Satan doesn't look at you and say, Oh, Zach's tired. He wants to settle. I'm just going to leave him alone for a little bit, right? That's not how it goes down. He goes on and he continues to attack and attack and attack and attack. And perhaps you being there in the battle could have strengthened your spouse, your kids, your brothers, your sisters, or other people in the church? There's this a quote, it comes up every once in a while in teachings, and it says, church is a lot like a football game. You see, there's 22 people in the field, badly in need of rest. And yet in the stands, there's 40,000 people badly in need of exercise, right? That's what football looks like. And so often that's what church looks like. It's the same 22 people running around and doing everything. Same 22 people running around and doing everything. Service after service after service after service. And yet there's hundreds of people in the church and "Ah, I'm a little tired. I'm going to sleep in tonight, right? I could just watch it online. It's so easy. I sit in my PJs and I watch it online, right? If you're watching online, don't settle. Stop being comfortable, right? You got to come on out and be at church. Now there's seasons. There are many people in the church family in seasons. Pray for them. Their whole lives have flip-flopped. And now they're taking care of their elderly parents. And it's a difficult season. And it's a hard season to get to church. But we are not to settle. We need to keep pressing through. We need to continue to fight and move forward. Moses, he tells them of their responsibility. Hey, there's still a war going on even if you want to settle. There's still a war going on affecting your brothers and sisters. Then Moses also warns them in verse 7, Why will you discourage the heart of the children of Israel from going over into the land which the Lord has given them? Again, Moses is having flashbacks here, right? We're going to read in a moment how the bad and fearful report of 10 men affected 2 million Israelites. The bad report, the fearful report of 10 men affected 2 million Israelites. Moses has been witnessing this. The last 38 years of their wandering has been a death march. We read it how... Corpses were falling in the wilderness. Two million people dying in 38 years. Every day they were dealing with the consequences of these ten men making decisions based on fear and not making decisions based on what the Word of God had told them. Family, it's so important for us to know that our pursuit of excellence affects the people around us. When you pursue excellence, it affects the people around you. However, the other side of that is when we settle for being mediocre, it also affects the people around us. We affect the people around us. It's just the way life goes. There's always that peer pressure going on. Sometimes there's different conferences, different retreats, right? And you ask someone else, hey, are you going? Nah, I'm not going, right? And where do you go? Ah, maybe I shouldn't go either, right? You talk to someone here, you're going, yeah, man, I'm going, I'm super excited. Yeah, maybe I should go. They're excited about it. Why am I not excited about it, right? And it affects us. When we pursue excellence, it affects the people around us. My pursuit of excellence when it comes to steak and coffee, it's affected the people around me. Last year, we were at the men's conference, and we went out for a steak. There's like 30 guys at a restaurant, and I have my dad with me, and he's eating the steak. And I could tell. I know my dad's eyes. So I'm seeing him eating the steak, and... Hey dad, were you happy with the steak? It was okay, right? He's seeing that we talked about it, right? The price and the steak that came out. Now, it was a good steak in a restaurant, but he's used to the steak that we make in the house. He doesn't have to pay for those steaks, right? And they're not mediocre. So it's like double whammy there, right? But when we pursue excellence, it affects the people around us. Just like when we settle for being mediocre, it affects the people around us as well. Have you been ever trying to pursue a diet or working out, right? And you sit down to eat and you say, hey, I'm on a diet. And you ask the person next to you, hey, are you on a diet? No, man, bulking season, right? (laughs) What happens? I guess this one time, right? I'll be a little mediocre in my diet, right? But then what happens the next meal? Hey, are you on a diet? Bulking season, right? And it just hits you over and over and over again. There's that saying, misery loves company. Right? Another saying, birds of a feather flock together. And whether we're pursuing excellence, you'll have people rise up with you wanting to pursue excellence. Or if you're wanting to pursue misery and mediocrity, there'll be people just waiting that you were wanting to pursue the same thing. Right? If you've ever been on a, on a road trip and you all suddenly get the urge to go to the bathroom. But what happens? You don't want to be the reason everybody stops to go to the bathroom, right? So what do you start doing? Hey, you guys think you got to go to the bathroom, right? Anybody else have to stop here, right? And when everybody says, no, I'm good, let's keep going, right? What do you do? Uh, You hold on a little bit harder, right? And you keep pushing it. You keep pursuing it. The Navy SEALs, they undergo some of the most difficult training in all the military. That's what makes them the Navy SEALs. They undergo this training that's called BUDS, which goes about 24 weeks of intense training. There's different seasons, there's different weeks that are grouped together, but during the most difficult part of BUDS, they literally have a bell in sight of all the soldiers going through the training. And what they're told over and over and over again is, hey, your suffering can stop, just ring the bell. That's all you have to do. Your suffering, the difficulty, the carrying the log, the being cold, the hypothermia, all of that could stop if you just ring the bell. And if you've watched the documentaries, if you've watched them, if you've heard the podcast, what happens? When one guy breaks and rings that bell, more often than not, two, three, four guys right afterwards start ringing that bell as well. But when those men are going through difficulty and they look at the men next to them and they say, hey, do you want to quit? And everybody says, no, I could go for years doing this. What does that do to you? It inspires you. It strengthens you to go forward. You see, that's why God is so explicit in his word to not stop gathering. Do not stop gathering. Because when we stop that, we stop encouraging one another with our faces. Seeing your face here, it encourages me. Perhaps you seeing someone else here, it encourages you. We're a family. We're in the battle together. And when we settle for being mediocre, it affects the people around us. And when we strive for excellence, it also affects the people around us as well. Verse 8, Moses gives them the quick history lesson here. He says, Thus your fathers did when I sent them away from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. For when they went up to the valley of Eshcol and saw the lands, they discouraged the heart of the children of Israel so that they did not go into the land which the Lord had given them. So the Lord's anger was aroused on that day. And he swore an oath saying, Surely none of the men who came up from Egypt from twenty years old and above shall see the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Because they have not wholly followed me, except Caleb, the son of Jephaneth, the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. Again, which group do we fall into? You see, there's no gray area, there's no middle ground. Verse 11 and verse 12. It's either those that are holy, following the Lord, or those who are settled and find settling for being mediocre. I'm not going to give the Lord my all. I'm going to keep these little kingdoms in my own life. I'm not going to give God my all. I have these little idols that I want to protect and keep. I'm not going to give God my all. I still have these fears that drive me and lead me. Why were the only two men allowed into the promised land, Caleb and Joshua? Because they wholly followed the Lord. Now were Joshua and Caleb perfect? Not at all. We see in the book of Joshua over and over and over again, God's having to encourage Joshua, over and over again encouraging Joshua. But these men, they gave their whole heart to the Lord. They did not allow fear to drive them or make their decisions. They followed the word of God, and they also followed the fruit and the blessing of God. While some men were worried about the giants, Joshua and Caleb were focused on the grapes right next to them. They were focused on the land being a land of milk and honey. They were focused on that God said that this land was for them. And if God said it was for them, then they were going to be able to win the battle because the battle belongs to the Lord. Family, I hope that tonight we get home and we say, Lord, help me to be like Joshua. Lord, help me to be like Caleb. And Caleb, he's such an encouragement to us. Caleb, we know he's old and age, and yet he still wants the mountains He still wants to fight. Caleb's not sitting there giving stories on what he once did for the Lord. Caleb is still focused and saying, I want to do more and I'm going to do more for the Lord. We have to be careful with that. But it tells us that he's the Kenizzite. You see, Caleb wasn't even born into the family of Israel. He's an outsider. And maybe you're here and you feel like you're an outsider. You just started coming here. If you have that desire... To wholly follow the Lord, you can encourage the people around you. Even the family that maybe you're being grafted into tonight. May we be those men and women that wholly follow the Lord. Verse 13. So the Lord's anger was aroused against Israel. And he made them wander in the wilderness 40 years. Until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And look. You have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. Again, they're repeating the same mistakes that their fathers did 38 years earlier. They wanted to settle and just stay there in Kadesh Barnea. They didn't want to go into the promised land. Verse 15, For if you turn away from following him, he will once again leave them in the wilderness, and you will destroy all these people. Sometimes we have these incorrect thoughts, right? No, nobody else here has incorrect thoughts, right? But sometimes we take certain promises that God gives us, and we lie to ourselves thinking that we don't have to lift a finger for them to happen. How God promises us that we are to overcome sin, and that we're supposed to overcome temptation, and overcome youthful lusts. And yet when it doesn't just magically happen, oftentimes we can get mad at God saying, God, your word says this, but why am I still struggling? Why am I still going through this? Perhaps that's exactly what happened here with the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad. They thought that God's promises were just going to automatically happen and they didn't have to lift a finger. Somehow they could settle and God's promises were still going to happen. Somehow they wouldn't have to work, there would be no labor necessary, and yet it would just magically happen. We have to be so careful about that. Talked about it in the young adults a couple weeks ago. Look in the dictionary of what the word struggle actually means, right? It's a hard battle, a hard battle, and you're doing all that you can to overcome and win the war. Oftentimes when we talk about struggling, if we're honest, that's not what we're talking about here, right? We're not giving our absolute awe in the battle and the fight against sin or against our thought life. Oftentimes we're choosing fear or we're choosing ease or we're choosing comfort instead of choosing what God has promised us, even though it's going to take work. David Guzik, he says, Moses perhaps felt that the tribes of Reuben or Gad made a bad choice for themselves. That is, they hurt themselves by settling on the lands east of the Jordan River. But Moses did not confront them with that issue. If a child of God is content to settle for less in their Christian life, there is little or nothing one can do. But when their complacency begins to affect their brothers and sisters, it must be confronted. This was the basis of Moses' confrontation. It's a warning to us as parents, right? We all know that our kids, they have to go their own way and they have to learn. They have to go through their own path. But when one child's downward spiral starts affecting our other sons and daughters, be wise as a parent to address and confront that heart and desire for being mediocre in their spiritual estate. We need to be concerned with the whole flock, with the whole army. We care about individuals. But when one person's sickness or bad decision starts to affect more people, we have to step in there and have that conversation. Verse 16, Then they came near to him and said, We will build cheap folds here for our livestock and cities for our little ones. But we ourselves will be armed, ready to go before the children of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones will dwell in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until every one of the children of Israel has received his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan and beyond. Because our inheritance has fallen to us on this eastern side of the Jordan. Here, what the tribe of Reuben and Gad are saying is, hey, we're going to leave our children and our families out of the battle. We're going to go to war and we'll leave our kids here in comfort and protection and in fortified walls and cities. And biblically, that goes bad every single time. Every single time. David, when he's running away from Saul and he's going from cave to cave and he's there with his family, everything's okay even though they're dwelling in caves, even though it may not look super posh, super perfect, super nice, may not be Coral Gables, right? But hey, they're living and they're surviving. The moment they have their own fortified city and David trusts in the fortification of the city, leaves the children and the wives, what happens? They get pillaged, they get plundered, and now the wives and the children are gone. And here, there's a warning to us. If you're in the battle Let your kids see the battle. Let your children see the great spiritual battle going on. And may our sons and our daughters hear from us the battle that we're in. It's a warning to us as parents. Are you in the battle right now? What do your kids think of you within this spiritual battle? What part do they think you play? Or do they just see you, yeah, my dad and mom, spiritual battle? I don't see that. Or if there's one, I guess they're sitting on the bench here in the comfort of the living room, watching the news every night, right? Where are we at? Are we encouraging and exhorting our kids to jump into the spiritual battle, or are we the reason and the excuse that they use to stay in mediocrity, right? What a dagger in our hearts. Do our kids look at us and say, hey, I want to be in the battle like that. I want to be in the battle like mom. Or do they use us, even though it's wrong, as the reason and the excuse to sit on the sidelines and settle and settle and settle and settle. Right? There's that great season in the life of a dad when the kids say, my dad can beat up your dad, right? And when you're a dad and you hear that, it encourages you and say, I got to work out even harder, right? I got to get even stronger, right? So I can give him the truth to what he's saying. What do our kids say of us when it comes to spiritual things? What do they say of us? Do we tell them of the great spiritual battles going on? Do we tell them of the great spiritual victories that are taking place within the church and within our lives? How friends and family members are getting saved? How marriages are being healed? How people that weren't able to have kids are having kids? Are we telling our kids of the victories of the spiritual battle going on? Are we just warning them about it? Are we telling our kids to focus their eyes on money or education or on comfort? Or do our kids know that the most important thing in our life, in my life as a father, is the battle that Jesus Christ has me fighting? What do our kids see when they look at us? Verse 20, then Moses said to them, If you do this thing, if you arm yourselves before the Lord for war, for the war, and all your men cross over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord. Then afterward you may return and be blameless before the Lord and before Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. We spoke about it lightly. Again, we don't have time to go into all of it. There's God's perfect will for our lives, and there's God's permissible will for our lives, right? There's two wills there. Here's God's perfect will. Zach, this is my ultimate desire for you. And then there's God's permissible will where God's still going to accomplish everything he wants to do, but I'm going to be the one missing out. And here for Gad and Reuben, that's what they're going to go down, the road of God's permissible will instead of God's perfect will for their lives. And in verse 23, what a great warning to us. But if you do not do so, then take note. You have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, and folds for your sheep, and do what has proceeded from your mouth. If you're wondering where that verse is, right, your sin will find you out. It's right here in Numbers 32, 23. And what a warning to us. How often we bite into the lies of Satan that somehow I'm going to cover up my sin. Somehow I'm going to cover up this phone and this text and no one's going to find out. Somehow I'm going to cover up all of the DMs, all of the secret messages, and no one's going to find out. It's a lie from the enemy. The wages of sin is death. And whatever is done in secret will be brought to the light. Whatever is done in secret, the Lord will bring it out publicly. Now for us to know here... It just says your sin will find you out. It does not say that God will drag you out of your sin and beat you publicly in front of everyone around you, right? We have to keep that in mind. God, he deals with us, and his desire is to deal with us privately. That's always God's first desire, is to deal with us privately. In our devotional time, maybe during a Bible study, Maybe listening to a teaching or listening to a worship song. God does his best to try to deal with us privately. But sometimes in our hard heart, oftentimes in just going by all the warnings, all the beckoning, all the wooing of the Holy Spirit, we harden our hearts. And then God has to deal with us publicly publicly. We see it each time a pastor falls and it affects a whole church. It's on the news. It's on social media. That man God was trying to deal with privately probably for years and years. But the heart gets hard. We buy into the lies of the enemy. And we believe somehow my sin will not find me out. Again, the word of God, it's true. It is the truth. There's no way we're going to get out. No one gets away with the big one. There's the story of a mother that visited her son for dinner at his new house, and he had a new roommate. And the new roommate was a girl. So she goes, and she follows, and she's there. She's eating together, and he's talked to the son before. Are you sure she's not more than just a roommate? No, 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 Mom. She's just a roommate. She sleeps in her room. I sleep in my room. Everything's okay. Then when she visits and she's there at the meal, she can't notice but how beautiful this woman was. And this made even her suspicion grow a little bit more. So she talked with them. She had a good meal with them. She hung out with them. And she's wondering, man, are they truly roommates? But the mom, she had the meal and she left. And then about a week later, his roommate came to him and said, Ever since your mother came to dinner, I haven't been able to find my silver ladle. Do you think your mom took it? The day she came, I haven't seen the silver ladle since. Do you think that she took it? He said, well, I doubt it, but I'll just email my mom to be sure. So he sits down and he writes an email. He says, dear mom, after you visited, a silver plate went missing. I'm not saying that you took the silver plate from my house. And I'm not saying that you didn't take it but the fact remains that it's been missing ever since you were here for dinner. Love, your son. Several days later, after receiving the email back from his mom, he gets a new email back, a reply, and it says, Dear son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with your roommate, and I'm not saying that you don't sleep with her, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the silver later by now under her pillow. (laughs) Love, mom, right? (laughs) You don't get away with it. We never get away with it. Never get away with it. Our sins will find us out. Our sins will find us out. We have to be so careful when the enemy lies to us. Because the best thing to do, the only thing that can affect our sin towards life is by dealing with it biblically and bringing it under the foot of the cross and under the blood of Jesus Christ. If we try to deal with sin any other way, The whole lie, time heals all things. Complete lie. Unless we take our sin and we ask for forgiveness and we handle it biblically, going to the Lord and asking for forgiveness towards the people that we've done wrong, our sin will find us out. Verse 25, And the children of Gad and the children of Reuben spoke to Moses, saying, Your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our flocks, and all our livestock will be there in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will cross over every man armed for war before the Lord to battle, just as my Lord says. So Moses gave command concerning them to Eliezer the priest, to Joshua the son of Nun, and to the chief fathers of the tribes of the children of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the children of Gad and the children of Reuben cross over the Jordan with you, every man armed for battle before the Lord, and the land is subdued before you, Then you shall give them the land of Gilead as a possession. But if they do not cross over armed with you, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. Then the children of Gad and the children of Reuben answered, saying, As the Lord has said to your servants, so we will do. We will cross over armed before the Lord into the land of Canaan. But the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us on this side of the Jordan. So Moses gave the children of Gad and the children of Reuben, and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, we see even more of the tribe here, half of the tribe of Manasseh, the kingdom of Shihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, and the land with its cities within its borders, the cities of the surrounding country. And the children of Gad built Dibon and Ataroth and Shobhan and Jazer and Jogmanah. We jump down here a bit. There's all these different names. Verse 42, Then Noba went and took Kenneth and its villages, and he called it Nobah after his own name. Last thing to look at here. Because these tribes settled for less than God's best, not only would they have to fight the spiritual war that was going on, not only would they have to go and fight the war with their brothers, but they would have to fight many more battles because they were settled for mediocrity. You see, every time a new country would come and fight and attack the nation of Israel, guess who was the first stop in the path? Guess who was outside of all the different brothers and all the other sisters and all of the protection? The tribe of Reuben, the tribe of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. As you go through the rest of the history of Israel, they're always the first group of people getting hit and being plundered and being pillaged and being taken away. So again, the warning to us when we settle for being mediocre in our spiritual estate, not only do we have to fight the normal spiritual battle that's going on, but then we have to fight all of these battles with sin because we're being mediocre, we're not cutting things off. We're not being holy as he's holy. And we're trying this middle ground that never works. And again, not only did it affect these men, but it affected every single generation of the tribe of Gad and the tribe, half-tribe of Manasseh and the tribe of Reuben. Just as Lot making his decisions based on his eyes and his comfort led him to live in the land of Sodom and Gomorrah. And not only did it affect his life, it affected the life of his wife, the effect of his daughters, and the life of his sons-in-law. So again, what a warning to us. Are we settling for, Lord, I'm okay being mediocre. I don't have to press on. Being an overcomer, it's for just crazy pastors, right? Right? You guys take it so serious. Why do you have to be so serious? He says, be holy for I am holy. And again, we look back at our lives. Imagine 10 years ago or 20 years ago, someone telling you, hey, you're going to be freed from that addiction of alcohol. Hey, you're going to be freed from that addiction of pornography. Hey, your marriage is going to be back together. Someone tells you these promises 10, 20, 30 years ago, you say, "What? what would it take for me to be free from these sins? And so often on the other side of it, we take it for granted and we say, "Man, why do I have to attack sin so hard? Can't I just be in this sort of middle ground? Can't I be just like this world and also go to heaven? Again, it's such a warning to us. So hey, may we press forward. May we not be condemned, but may we see the life of Caleb and Joshua and say, Lord, I want to wholly follow you. I don't want anything mediocre in my life, much less in my spiritual life. May all the men here be an example to their sons and daughters and say, "Hey, I want to be in the spiritual battle just like my dad was, just like my mom was.